You are listening to Pastor Kevin Giddings of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Penitent Heart Will Pass, recorded on July the 31st, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Kevin as he preaches. The sermon series this morning, uh, once again, our sermon series of Psalms, sermon titled is The Penitent Heart Will Pass. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51, 1 through 17. And there should be some scripture up here for you, but we're looking at Psalm 51, 1 through 17. And in your Bibles, you should see a little subtitle that says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And many of you are familiar with this chapter and familiar with that verse specifically, Create in me a clean heart, O God. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So let's follow along together in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice. Verse 16 and 17 are key verses here. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. In other words, God, you don't delight in me just checking off the boxes. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And then verse 17 is very key and critical here. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit. And contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know, as I was meditating on the text for this message, one of the scenes that popped in my brain was from Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Do you remember that? Indy is on the search for the Holy Grail, and now it's at the climax of the movie. Time is running out because the evil art collector, Walter Donovan, who is in cahoots with the Nazis, has shot Indy's father. You remember Sean Connery? Wish I could talk like him. Henry Jones Sr. 
He's done this to make Indy go in and find the grill so that he can save his dad. Indy knows because of his dad's research that there are three booby traps before you can even get to the grill, which is on the other side. And the clue to the first one was what popped into my mind, and the clue is this. Only the penitent man will pass. Only the penitent man will pass. I remember thinking about what penitent meant, and at the time I really didn't have a clue what that word meant. I kind of thought maybe it had to do with repentance, and because of the scene I kind of put two and two together, but I really wasn't sure, but I thought about it, and I heard that it describes a person who is sorry for the mistakes they've made and the things they've done. As Indy moves slowly forward, he keeps repeating, the penitent man will pass. The penitent man will pass. And creeping through the dark tunnel, he talks to himself, the penitent man is is humble before God. The penitent man, the penitent man is humble. Penitent man is humble, kneels before God, and then if you remember, all of a sudden he screams, kneel! And right as he says it, two razor-sharp blades whirl from the stone walls. Indy narrowly kneeling and rolling to safety. You remember that scene? It's a fantastic scene. And that scene has always stuck with me. A penitent man, what is that? Well, the passage we just read gives us an amazing example of what a true penitent man looks like and why God looks on this kind of heart with favor. God looks upon a penitent heart with favor. By penitent, And this should be your first fill in the blank. By penitent, I mean a person who displays God-centered repentance. By penitent, what we mean is a a person who displays God-centered repentance and faith towards God. And of course, you know as well as I do that repentance means turning from our sin and to faith in God. So penitent. The penitent heart will pass. The penitent man will pass. A person who displays God-centered repentance and faith towards God. And as you can see from the subtitle of the passage in your Bible, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, or in another word, a song of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now what really amazes me initially about this subtitle is that this was a psalm written by David and sung in some form or fashion in worship. Now, why this is amazing to me is not only what lies in the wonderful truths that flow from his heart towards God, but the humility. Can you imagine? The humility that it takes to not only make his sin public, but make it so public that it for generations... Generations would know and learn from his sin, but also the restoration afterwards by singing it in worship. It's like if Pastor Matt were to write a song based on his worst sins, writing down his confession and pleas of mercy before God, and then adding it to the songs we sing on a regular basis. Can you imagine? Well, that would be awkward, right? So here in the subtitle are the three people involved that bring David to write this psalm. If you remember, without going into the entire story of David's sins, Nathan the prophet goes to David and confronts him with his sins of adultery and murder. I'm going to ask you to turn, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
Once again, we're not going to go through the entire story of David, but I do want you to see the confrontation that happens and then see how David responds to Nathan when he brings the wood, so to speak. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. So he starts off the confrontation telling a story to David. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Wow. Once again, Nathan brought the wood, didn't he? He did not hold back. To summarize what Nathan said, he says, You are the man who despised the word of the Lord. You are the one that did evil in his sight and utterly scorned the Lord. God has given you so much, and he would have given you so much more. And David, not only did you do it, but you tried to hide it. God will make it public, and there will be enormous consequences, but... He'll have mercy on your life. He will not put you to death. He will save your life. And at that point, Nathan dropped the mic and went home. You see, there are two responses here that could have potentially been made by David. One that we'll see in just a moment that he did make, 
But you know, he could have been defensive. I know many times in my life, I'm, I think many times I'm the most defensive person around, making excuses. When someone brings the wood to me, many times what I do is I, no, 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 you don't understand. You weren't there. Sometimes I get very angry, very defensive. But that's not what David did. Let's look at David's response. What I want us to see is David's initial response to the confrontation and his continued response in Psalm 51. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've not sinned against Uriah, even though I did. It's not just about me sinning against Bathsheba. I've sinned against the Lord. And then he starts off Psalm 51 with, Have mercy on me, O God. You know, he sinned against a multitude of people that impacted generations for years to come. And I'm sure David grieved over that of how his sin impacted them. But if you look at his initial response, his initial response was how his sin impacted his relationship with the Lord. David was grieving over his sin, not just because of Uriah and Bathsheba, but first and foremost, because it was against the Lord. God-centered grief your next fill-in. God-centered grief. Because you know, there is a difference between God-centered grief and worldly grief. God-centered grief comes from a penitent heart. A true penitent heart is where God-centered grief comes from. Producing a process of repentance that leads to life and pleases God. God-centered grief comes from a penitent heart. We talked about what that means and what that looks like a little bit. Producing a process of repentance that leads to life and pleases God. Now we know if you're a Christian this morning because of what Christ has done for you, God cannot be any more pleased with you than he is right now because when he looks upon you, he looks upon his son because Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live, perfect obedience to the Father. And he died a substitutionary death on your behalf. He shed his blood for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. So when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, what that means is that he imputes Christ's righteousness to you. And what that means, that word imputed, when he looks upon you, he does not see your sin. He sees his son in perfect obedience to himself. But after you become a Christian, because of God's great love for you, especially shown through Jesus Christ, and your love for him, you want to please him, right? You want to honor him. He is worthy of your obedience. He is worthy of your worship. So when I think about what pleases God, because I'm a born-again man, I want to please my Father. I want to know what pleases Him. 
I want to honor him. I want to worship him. I want to be a man of integrity, biblical integrity. So that's what caught my attention when I first read Psalm 51 years ago. The penitent heart pleases God. The Bible describes godly grief like this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief starts with feeling bad for what you did to others, and there's nothing wrong with that. You should feel bad if you sinned against someone else. Sometimes worldly grief is, you're just, you're just sorry you got found out. Sometimes it's because you know, worldly grief comes from the fact that, hey, I had consequences from my sin. But godly grief starts with how you and I have offended God and then leads to repentance. Psalm 51 illustrates this and instructs us on what a penitent heart looks like and where God-centered grief takes the penitent heart. So let's look at Psalm 51 a little bit more closely. In verses 1 and 2, because David sees God as the one he ultimately sinned against, David also goes to God as the only one who can provide mercy, the mercy and forgiveness that he needs, but also the mercy and forgiveness that he desires because he realizes there's only one he sinned against first and foremost, ultimately, and that is the Lord. David appeals to God's character in verses 1 through 2 for this mercy and forgiveness. So let's look at it together again, verses 1 through 2. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? To your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, the two aspects of God's character that he appeals to are God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. You know, just like many of us, David looks back on his life and he has seen, he has experienced God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. It's not just the fact that that that's what the Bible says, but that he's actually experienced it and seen it. He knows God. He has a relationship with the Lord. But you know what? He does not presume upon God's grace. He asks for it. He does not presume upon God's grace. He asks for God's grace based on what he knows about God. In other words, God, I have seen your steadfast love. I have seen your mercy time and time again. And Nathan even points out God's mercy to him in that scripture that we read earlier. But instead of presuming upon God's grace, because it's always been there, he asks for it. You see, a penitent heart does not presume upon the grace of God, but asks for the grace of God. Are you with me this morning? This is so very critical. A a penitent heart 
does not presume upon the grace of God, but asks for the grace of God. Now that word presume, let's break that apart a little bit. In my own little study of the word presume, if you take the word assume and you put a little bit of arrogance with it and a little bit of entitlement with it, that's where we get the word presume. So a penitent heart does not assume with arrogance or entitlement upon the grace of God because it's always been there and because that's what the word says, that God is gracious and merciful and kind and that he's forgiven you of all your sins, which is the gospel, which is a wonderful truth. But you see, we don't presume upon that grace because it's there. We ask for the grace of God. When you sin, when I sin, do, do we first go to God and acknowledge our sin before him and ask for his mercy? Or do you take his loving and merciful character for granted? You know, many times we're like a spoiled child who takes advantage of his or her parents' love. I remember growing up, my mom is probably one of the sweetest women you would ever want to meet. Still is. She has shown me time and time again throughout my entire life that her love for me is unconditional. And boy, I have blown it on many occasions. But her steadfast love towards me has never failed. And like many of you this morning, if you've had a parent like that or a person in your life like that, because of their love for you and their mercy towards you, you come to trust it. You come to be confident in their mercy and their love for you. But isn't there a line that we all cross at times where we cross from trust and confidence to presumption? And that line is very, very subtle and very fine. There is a difference between trusting God's love and being confident of God's love and presuming upon God's love and his grace in your life. God is not pleased when we presume upon his grace and love. But many times we say in our sin, oh, it's okay, I'm forgiven. Sometimes we say, it's okay, I'm under grace. Sometimes we say, you don't understand, he'll still love me. But folks, that is presuming upon the grace of God. And it has absolutely zero place in the life of a Christian. We ask for God's grace. We ask for his mercy and his love towards us. Now once again, I don't want you to misunderstand because the great gospel of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that you can do or can't do in terms of your salvation for God to love you any more than he does today. But that doesn't mean that you can just go on sinning and saying that I'm under grace. That doesn't mean that you can look back and say, well, he's forgiven me before, he'll forgive me again. No, sir. 
Yes, God is merciful, gracious, and quick to forgive, but a penitent heart first acknowledges his sin or her sin against God and runs quickly to the throne of grace to ask God for the mercy and help that is needed. God-centered grief leads to a process of repentance that starts with, first, confession. Let's look at verses 3 through 6 for what God-centered confession looks like. David says, For I know my transgressions, this is his confession, that started with godly grief. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And as I stated earlier, and as we see again in verses 3 through 4, a penitent heart knows and acknowledges his sin before God. So the first step in a God-centered confession is addressing who you've sinned against which is what he does. Against you and you alone have I sinned. But there are a few other things, though, that I want us to notice here that flow from a penitent heart. Look at the end of verse 4 and all the way through verse 5. David does not make excuses. He admits he's a sinner through and through, and he accepts the judgments and consequences that God gives and allows. And not only does he accept them, he says that they are right and justified. So he starts off with godly grief and then he confesses against you and you alone have I sinned and he pins it into the psalm for worship for generations to come. He wants everyone to know that he did it. That it was against the Lord and that whatever judgments or consequences that follow that are right and justified, that God was right in giving judgment and consequences to a sin. You see, a penitent heart humbly admits, acknowledges, and accepts full responsibility for his or her sin and avoids the ifs, ands, and buts of excuse-making. A penitent heart humbly admits, acknowledges, and accepts full responsibility for his or her sin and avoids the ifs, ands, and buts of excuse-making. And by the way, I put a little parentheses in my manuscript here in preparation. This also applies to your interpersonal relationships with your spouse or a coworker or a friend or a church family member. Avoid the excuses So as you think about godly grief, you think about confession. These principles, these guidelines, this this wonderful truth also applies to healthy relationships between you and another person. So rather than, well, if, uh, but, you, you know, instead of that, you confess without excuse. What does that look like for you? Do you admit Acknowledge and accept full responsibility and avoid excuse-making? Have you done that? See, God-centered confession looks like throwing yourself on the mercy of the court, so to speak. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. I did it. I alone. 
and I accept the judgments and consequences thereof. But you know, with David in Psalm 51, it's, it's less of a court scene and more of a, a child coming to his father and saying, I did it. I've sinned against you. You and you alone are the one I go to for the mercy that I need. It's much like the prodigal coming back home in Luke chapter 15. And I want to read for us this morning a paraphrase of Luke chapter 15 that I found that I think is very um, instrumental in what we're talking about. It says, There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. And let me say it this way. He actually said it like this. Father, I want right now what's coming to me. This is presumption. This is assuming with arrogance and entitlement what he feels like he is owed. So the father divided the property between them. And it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. And there, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. And after he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all throughout that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop. But no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am, starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, I know what I'll say to him. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you, and I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. So that seemed right to him. He got right up and went home to his father. In the next two sections, I want you to notice his confession, and I want you to notice the father's response. Because once again, this is a picture of you and me with our father. It says, when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him, the father to the son here. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you, and I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. Do you see any excuses in there whatsoever? And look at the grace of the father. Without reply to his son, the father called to the servants, Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to celebrate tonight. We're going to have a wonderful time because my son is here who was given up for dead and now alive, given up for loss and now found. No excuses or entitlement, just grief and confession over his sin. For the father, no, I told you so, just open arms. Folks, if God is the one we ultimately sin against and the one we confess our sin to, then he is also the one the penitent heart looks to for restoration. 
It's not just about grief and confession. It's also looking to God for the good that will come out of that situation. In verse six, one can see a little bit of a transition from looking to God for forgiveness to looking to God for the good that will be accomplished. In verses seven through 12, David asked God to restore him inwardly. He calls it the secret heart. There's still an acknowledgement of his sin and his need for forgiveness, but David is adding another layer to his petition, which is God-centered restoration. God is the one he sinned against, that he receives mercy from, and he's also, God is the only one who can truly restore the inner man. So without reading that scripture for you, I'm going to give you what he asks for in restoration. He asks for purity. If you take these words in those verses, verses 7 through 12, there are certain words that mean these things. He asks for purity. He asks for happiness, healing. He asks for approval. He asks for steadfastness. He asks for God's presence. He asks for the joy that comes from being saved. And he asks for the willingness to follow because you know what? It is God that causes us by his grace to obey. We ask God, God, I'm going to blow it again. So will you please help me? Will you even give me the desire and the willingness to follow you? Because there will be a day where I won't feel like I'm willing, that I don't desire you. I'm not going to wake up on a certain morning and have joy in the Lord. Will you please on that day give me a willingness to follow? You see, folks, it's not only good to look to God for forgiveness, but it is equally as good to look to God for our restoration, for he is good. Folks, he is for you and not against you. This is the greatest news in the universe that God, even in the midst of your sin, that he is for you and not against you because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's great news. This is the news that we share. This is why we exist. This is why we do anything in our church because of this great news to share with other people. He wants your best and he knows that your best only comes through him, especially after you have sinned and need restoration. You see, a penitent heart asks, seeks, and trusts God alone for the restoration he or she needs after committing sin. A penitent heart asks, seeks, and trusts God alone for the restoration he or she needs after committing sin. Many, many times I look to other people for that restoration which is good. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But if I'm looking to get the warm fuzzies again, because after someone restores me and says, hey, it's okay, Kevin, you're under grace. That's all good. But who am I looking to ultimately for that restoration? Because he is the only one that can restore what you have tarnished what I have tarnished, what I have damaged, what I have hurt, what I have marred in my life. You know, it's much like those restoration shows that you see on TV. I love the show 
American Restoration. I love that show. It is amazing to me how this guy will take like an old appliance or old antique or an old Coke machine and it will look oh, horrible. And by the end of the show, it looks like it had never been touched. You see, he's an expert at that. He knows how to restore. And much like that, God is, is the only one that can restore what you have tarnished, what I have tarnished. He's the only one that can restore relationships. So if you're bitter or you're resentful or you've sinned against someone or they have sinned against you, look to God for restoration. Allow him to give you the strength and the grace and the love and the mercy to either receive forgiveness or to give forgiveness. But also, like David says, in the inner man, in the, in the secret place of the heart, if the enemy has come and has wreaked havoc in your life, in your heart, especially in the private places where there is so much shame built up, it's hard for you to even pray anymore. Or maybe it's your own heart that condemns you. The Bible says that God is greater than your heart. That's right in the Word of God. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And the enemy, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But God wants to restore. There is no one in this universe like your God who can restore the inner man. David finishes the psalm with David, or David finishes the psalm with God-centered repentance and faith. If you look at verses 13 through 17, David continues to look to God to initiate restoration. But as he does, he then describes what repentance and faith look like as they follow restoration. He uses three action words of repentance. And because this is a psalm of worship, he uses the three words teach, sing, and declare. He wants to teach, he wants to sing, and he wants to declare. These are the words of worship, and as stated earlier, the Psalms are written with worship in mind. In other words, what David is saying is this, Lord, as you restore me, I'll worship you. And as I do, others will know who you are. They will know your ways, and they will know the heart that you desire. And as, God, as David is declaring this, he is also turning from his sin and turning to God in faith. He is declaring what he is going to do in light of God's initiative of grace. He is turning from his sin and leading others to turn as well to faith in God. However, if you look at verses 16 through 17, they sum up this psalm and what God is really looking for in a penitent heart more than anything else. It is not mere outward behavior change for the sake of outward behavior change. It is not just checking off the boxes, going to church enough, tithing enough, getting involved in ministry enough, even though those things are important and good. But if, folks, if you were here just to check off the boxes, God's not pleased with that. God is pleased with brokenness, the brokenness of heart that leads to outward change. It's the heart that leads 
the behavior. A penitent heart is a broken heart. The Bible speaks often of a contrite or broken, use either word. The Bible often speaks of a contrite or broken heart. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, the Lord says, These are the ones I look on with favor. I want to be this. Folks, do you want to be one that God looks on with favor? He already does that because of his son, but in your sanctification, as you're growing as a child of his, don't you want to please your father? Don't you want him to look on you with favor? I do. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. That convicts me. So often I don't tremble at his word. And in Psalm 51, 17, David writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So what does that look like to be contrite? Well, a contrite heart, I'll give you a definition. A contrite heart is one which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled. Listen to this. A contrite heart is one in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled, decimated by the consciousness of guilt. The Hebrew and Greek words often translated contrite actually mean crushed, crippled, broken. And when contrite modifies the word heart, we get the picture of a conscience that is crushed by the weight of its own guilt. And when a human spirit stops justifying its wrong choices, awakens to the depth of its depravity, and humbly accepts God's righteous condemnation of sin, contrition is present. A contrite heart offers no excuses and shifts no blame. It fully agrees with God about how evil it is. A contrite heart throws itself upon the mercy of God, knowing that it deserves nothing but righteous wrath. And folks, hear me this morning. The place of contrition, the place of brokenness, is a blessed place to be. God says, this is what the word of God says, I live in a high and holy place. So when you look at that verse right there, you go, wow, how, because of my sin, how could I even be there? Because you are high and holy. But then it finishes. It says, I live in a high and holy place, but also I live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's Isaiah 57, verse 15. What a great truth that a holy God condescends to a sinner like me and says, come, be with me. And not only be with me, I will restore you. I will revitalize you. I love you. This breaks my heart, but it also makes me eternally grateful A contrite heart does not take the forgiveness of God for granted. 
It has grieved over its own sin and what that sin costs the Son of God. Contrition is a key factor in true repentance, and without it, we are like the proud Pharisee going through the motions of religion, yet harboring arrogance in our hearts. Contrition agrees that our heart intent on following Christ must reject evil in all of its forms, and a contrite heart harbors no thoughts of repeating its sin. Rather, it seeks the strength of God to overcome sin and move on toward holiness. Today, what we've talked about is, and what you've heard is what God looks for, what pleases him, what he has favor upon in your heart, what will pass for a true heart of repentance. The, the penitent heart will pass. Folks, it's, it's more than merely praying a prayer and doing good things for God to check off the boxes. A penitent heart will pass as he or she with brokenness turns from sin to Jesus Christ by faith and for the grace, forgiveness, and restoration he or she needs. Church, has the reality of your sin ever caused you to be broken before God? Has the reality of your sin ever caused you to be broken before God? And has the reality of His grace towards you in Christ caused you to worship Him with your life? I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want you to take it the wrong way, but if this has not been your experience, then you may not be a Christian. The most intimate experience, the sweetest, most intimate experience between God and you, his child, is when you, the prodigal, comes back home. And for me, this is on a daily basis. Not for my salvation, because I'm a saved man. But because I love my Father. And I want to please Him. And I want Him to look on me with favor. But the most experience between you and God is when you, the prodigal, comes home. And you say to God, I- I've sinned against you. You and you alone have I sinned against. But God, according to your steadfast love and your mercy, will you forgive me? Will you restore me? And then you'll find your Father watching and waiting for you at the end of the road.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.